Well, my heart is still full from an incredible night of worship through song last night. If you were here, you got a $70 or $80 concert for 15 bucks. It was great. If you weren't here, well, you blew it. Uh, that's all right. If I haven't met you, my name is Nathan Sherman. I'm the youth minister here at Desert Springs. And many of you know that I love movies. Love them. Because so much good TV is being made lately, my movie intake has slowed down a little bit. But I still just love sitting on the couch for two hours and watching a movie. And I think most of us probably do because as humans, we love story. One of my favorite kind of story through film is the genre of the documentary film. This is one of the reasons why I love Netflix so much is because there's just so many good documentaries available. I think what makes a good documentary film is its ability to reveal an entire world that you didn't know existed, whether that world is about a person or a thing or a whole culture. So you can learn about a crazy Frenchman who illegally tightrope walked between the World Trade Center towers in the 70s and your palms will just sweat as you watch. You can learn about an entire culture of competitive arcade gamers and the quest to break the high score of Donkey Kong. This might be my favorite documentary of all time, by the way. Uh, you can learn everything that you could possibly want to know about a font. I love fonts. Helvetica. Uh, but a really good story and documentary doesn't just seek to educate. It seeks to change how the viewer thinks and then ultimately acts. So you might stop eating at a common fast food chain after watching one documentary. Or you might stop eating fast food altogether. It's happened to me for about four or five days. Uh, you, you might stop going to a popular theme park. Your views on the education system or the medical system might change. Well, this morning we are starting a, the first week of a several-month series through the gospel according to Mark, and I couldn't be more excited about it. I'm not trying to compare Mark or the other gospel writers uh, to a documentary filmmaker. But the gospel writer's goal is not that dissimilar from a documentary filmmaker. Their goals are not only to educate and to reveal a new world, but to also change how the viewer thinks, how he or she acts, how he or she believes. So while Mark doesn't come right out and say why he's writing his gospel like Luke or John do, he's just as much concerned as the other writers that in reading his account, we may know with certainty who Jesus is and that we might believe in him. This is Mark's goal, and it will be our goal as well over the next few months. To paraphrase Augustine, if in a few months you think that you understand the gospel according to Mark, but you have not grown in your love of God and your love for your neighbor, you're doing it wrong. You haven't understood it at all. Of course, all scripture is the inspired word of God and profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. But I love the four gospel accounts. I love to read them. I love to think about them. I love to teach them. So I was naturally really excited when a few weeks ago Ryan asked me to kick off this new series in Mark. And I love the Gospels because in story form we have four complementary accounts that try to answer all the questions that the Old Testament has been asking for centuries. Namely, how will God be holy and just on the one hand and simultaneously loving and forgiving on the other? 
The answer, of course, comes in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But before we get into Mark, and specifically into our text in the first half of chapter 1, we need to clarify exactly what it is we're about to read, what it is we're about to be spending so much time in for the next few months. What is a gospel account? What are these first four books that we have in our New Testament? Gospel, or literally good news, or glad tidings, is exactly that. Roman emperors, or others with a sense of special self-importance, would send out these good news accounts, these stories of their lives, how they were born, what they did, what they accomplished. So the gospel genre wouldn't be an entirely new thing to the early readers of these four gospel accounts. But what would be new would be its heavy reliance on eyewitness testimony, eyewitnesses who Mark references throughout, almost saying, like, if you don't believe me, go ask them. What else would be new is how the Gospels not so subtly paint Jesus as not just an important figure, not just an important king, not just an important guy, but the most important person in the history of the universe. In fact, this is why we've titled this series to the Gospel of Mark, Who is This Man? Mark will go to extraordinary lengths for his readers to be able to answer this question. Mark will let us come alongside many of the characters in the story and discover with them who Jesus is. So one commentator sums up Mark's efforts. A stunned synagogue crowd asked, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. Livid theological experts asked themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Spooked disciples ask, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. A resentful hometown crowd asks, where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? Vexed priests ask, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you authority to do this? The truth suddenly hits a centurion in the execution squad when he sees how Jesus died. Surely this man was the son of God. The Pharisees think he is in league with Satan. Herod's best guess is that he's the, he is John the baptizer come back to life to haunt him for his sins. Some think he's Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. The disciples are captivated by his powers, but are baffled as to who he is for much of the opening chapters. Only Peter, James, and John are let in on this mystery at the transfiguration. They hear the voice from the clouds proclaim that Jesus is God's beloved son. This is an amazing, amazing book. An amazing account that, God, that Mark is trying to answer for us. Who is this man? But as we were talking about it this week, Ryan, Trent and, I were, Trent and I were talking about how Mark often seems to get the short end of the stick in compared to the other four or the other three. And I guess it can be understandable why that is. The big sermons that we find through some of the other Gospels aren't here in Mark, so we don't have the Sermon on the Mount. None of the big I am phrases, the I am sermons in, in John. Other than a couple, the parables really aren't here. So we don't have the prodigal son or the good, the good Samaritan, these stories that we love from Jesus. But last week in our youth class, I shared a quote when I was introducing the minor prophets to them that our God does not waste words. Each book in the Bible is immensely important because this is chiefly how God has chosen to reveal himself to us. And if it's true that God does not waste words, then he certainly hasn't wasted his time in giving us the gospel according to Mark. So we should read it. We should know it. We should be transformed by it. 
Mark is primarily concerned with the narrative here. It reads like a movie script. One of his favorite words is immediately, as in, and then immediately this happened. If you just scan through the paragraphs in your Bible, you'll notice a good deal of the paragraphs begin with the word and, which is what your eighth grade English teacher told you exactly not to do. But Mark loves to ignore eighth grade English teachers. He wants to keep the action moving and moving and moving until it reaches its destination at Golgotha in an empty tomb. It's true that Matthew, Luke, and John do some things that Mark doesn't, but Mark is a masterpiece in and of itself, and he is writing with firm and deep theological foundations underneath him. We'll begin to see that this morning. So are we ready? I can't wait to spend the next few months here in Mark, certainly this morning with you. So let's read the first 15 verses of the gospel according to Mark, as inspired by the Holy Spirit. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord for us and it is good and profitable. I pray that we might believe it and trust in it. New Testament scholar Nick Perrin has broken down the entire book of Mark into three themes. Movement, Messiah, and Mission. So with the addition of a fourth M, message, we will easily see these themes being played out today in our text. By the way, it seems that we are incapable of avoiding alliteration in our sermons at DSC lately. Uh, Alliteration is coming back, people. In the 80s and 90s, all pastors did it. But then, like in the early 2000s, only those who were like being especially cheeky and ironic did it. But now, here we are, 2014, and it's like every week. Don't call it a comeback. It's here. All right. Uh, But I digress. All right. Let's get after this. A new movement. The first eight verses here. As I said, Mark is an incredible theologian, and he's going to show us his chops right in the first phrase of the first verse of the first chapter of his book. It says, the beginning. Is this reminiscent of any other passage in Scripture? You bet. Genesis 1.1. Come on, you may be saying. He's, he's just saying, this is, this is the beginning of my story. Here's how I'm starting. Well, he is saying that, but that's not all. We'll see this morning and many mornings over the next several months that Mark wants to make clear to us that Jesus is ushering in a new creation. 
Jesus is all about bringing God's right rule on earth as it was in creation. So Mark wants the first words of the Old Testament to be ringing in our ears as we open his account of the new creation. So in the beginning of the gospel, the good news, the proclamation about Jesus Christ, Christ being not Jesus' last name, son of Joseph and Mary Christ, but Christ as a title. The Greek word for the Hebrew word, Messiah, the anointed one who would come finally to crush Satan's head. The one promised to Abraham and bring God's blessing to the world. The one promised to come from David to reign as God's king forever over his people. Jesus, that guy. Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the Christ. Who also happens to be the Son of God. Which we'll understand in, a greater, in greater detail later in this chapter. So, now that I've established who this book is about, Mark seems to be saying, now let me tell you what it's about. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, verse 2, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, unless you have the entire book of Isaiah memorized, you may not have any issues with what we just read. New Testament writers quote Old Testament books all the time, so this isn't that surprising. The problem is, is that Mark doesn't really quite quote Isaiah here. He says this is Isaiah, but it's really not just Isaiah. He's combining a verse about a voice crying in the wilderness from Isaiah 40, verse 3, and then putting it together and kind of mixing and mashing it all up with two verses about a messenger preparing the way from Exodus 23 and Malachi 1. But he says it's all Isaiah. Critics of the Bible will often point to this verse and say, see, the Bible can't even quote itself right. It's not trustworthy. It's full of mistakes. It's totally unreliable. But what Mark is doing here was a common first century way of blending and combining several verses that appear at first glance to not have that much in common and then show that they actually do have a lot in common and to make them into one unit. And he titles it Isaiah. So one commentator sums up what Mark is doing here. Exodus 23 verse 20 contains God's promise to send his messenger before the Israelites on their exodus through the desert to Canaan. Isaiah 43 speaks of a a second exodus through the desert to a final deliverance prepared for God's people. And then Malachi 3.1 warns that God will send a messenger to prepare the way before him prior to the coming of the day of judgment. So Mark here is not an Old Testament ignoramus. He knows the Old Testament better than all of us. He sees this theme of a preparatory messenger leading God's people in an exodus through the wilderness all over the Old Testament. And then he sees this theme being repeated and then fulfilled here by a guy that we all call John the Baptist. Or maybe better, John the Baptizer as a title for what he does rather than like John the Methodist or John the Presbyterian, right? But this baptizer shows up and begins preaching in the wilderness, the same place By the way, Israel often finds itself wandering in and in need of a deliverer to bring them back into the place of God's rule and presence. So Mark tells us that this John goes out telling the people that this is exactly what is about to happen. A new exodus is about to happen, leading the people into the place of God's presence. But John's kind of a weird and kooky guy, isn't he? He's dressed in camel hair and a leather belt, and he's eating locusts and honey. And perhaps that doesn't mean a lot to us. We're just like, all right, he's wearing camel hair. 
But let's pretend I told you about a guy who went out into the mountains and he was dressed in like fringed leather and he wore a coonskin cap and he carried like a big long musket. Most of you would think this guy is trying to identify himself as Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier. Well, Mark here is doing the same thing. This camel hair and leather belt thing is the way that Elijah is described in 2 Kings and throughout much of the Old Testament. Okay, neat. Who cares about Elijah? Well, in Malachi 4, the chapter after, uh, chapter 3, which Mark quotes from about God sending a messenger to prepare the way, we read this. Malachi 4, 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. This, by the way, is the second to the last verse of what we call the Old Testament. And since then, there's been about 400 years of complete silence from God. The people have not heard from God for many, many centuries. The people at this point had to have been wondering, is God even still there? Are we still his people? Are the promises that were made to Abraham and David still good? And then, boom, Elijah shows up preaching in the wilderness. Malachi 4 is happening. Ryan said at the beginning of his first sermon of introducing 1 Samuel that when things started happening in Israel again for the first time in many, many years, it's as if Aslan is on the move, right? When John shows up preaching and baptizing, it's happening again. The snow is beginning to melt. Springtime is coming. Aslan is on the move. And I think the people recognize that this is what's happening too. I think from coloring sheets and Kids' Bibles, I tend to think that at any given time, maybe there was like 20 or 30 people around hearing John preach, maybe getting baptized. But Mark tells us that all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem are coming out to him. We're likely talking thousands, if not tens of thousands of people going out to hear John preach. John is a celebrity. Rulers and religious leaders are frightened of his sway over the people. In Acts 19, Paul meets some guys in Ephesus who evidently had come down to get baptized by John, but who did not know of Jesus. Like everyone in the Mediterranean world, or at least in this part of the world, is excited about John the baptizer. They're seeing what's about to happen, that, that, that Elijah is here. But why is Elijah here? Why is John the Baptist here? To prepare the way of the Lord. It's like John is showing up to till up the soil and get it ready. Or he's like one who goes before a traveling king to make sure that the the road is accessible and free of any interference. He wants to make sure that the people know and understand this as well. In verse 7, he says to them, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I'm not Aslan. Don't be confused. He seems to be saying the king is coming. He is mightier than I, and I'm not even worthy to touch his shoes. But what is he coming to do? What is this king coming to do? To baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Say what, John? Like, you mean how God said he would do in Ezekiel, in the coming of the new covenant? We read, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
hang on a minute, John. Really? Like the new covenant is really almost here where we will no longer just live under the blessings and the cursings of the law, where God will lead his people in a new exodus, not just physically to a new location, but spiritually out of their sin, fully dwelling with God himself. That new covenant is almost here. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And if you keep asking questions, I might just go full Tony from West Side Story and start singing like something's coming. I don't know when, but it's going to be great. You got to believe me. You don't want to see me like ballet fight. So just believe me and get ready. The time is now to repent, to be prepared for this coming king. Aslan is on the move indeed. God is moving at this point in history, at this time. He's moving towards his people so that they might move out of their sin and toward him finally and fully. Mark has set the stage here. The entirety of the Old Testament is about to be fulfilled. John the Baptist knows it, and he is preaching to prepare the people for it. And then the floodgates open in our second point. A new Messiah, verses 9 through 11. If we hadn't thought well about verses 1 through 8, it might be tempting to read verse 9 as, Oh, and by the way, in those days, you know, by the way, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. But knowing what we know about verses 1 through 8, we know that John has been on the stage setting up the scene. It's like he's been arranging the chair and the rug and the lamp on the stage just right. The lights are set and shining in just the right place on the stage so that it is ready for the main protagonist to walk on and steal the show. So we don't read, oh, and by the way, in those days. No, we read, oh, in the days that John was preparing for the entire history of the universe to be fulfilled, verse 9, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now Mark has already told us that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one promised and whose coming is meticulously followed throughout the Old Testament through the line of Adam, Seth, Noah, Shem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Boaz, David. We've been waiting and waiting and waiting for him for so long. And then here he is. And bringing all of God's promises with him. He comes with power, but he also comes not as we expect. After his baptism, we read in verse 10, And when he came up out of the water... Immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, in a pretty famous scene, there's a whole lot going on here. We'll talk about why Jesus is baptized in the first place in just a moment, but let's first look at how Mark describes it. He says that the heavens are torn open. Now, Matthew and Luke, in their account of this baptism, they just say the heavens are open, the skies are opened. But Mark very intentionally uses this word, torn open, or maybe in some of your translations, split open. Now, when something is opened, it might be pretty easy just to close it. Maybe like a jar of peanut butter or something. Open and close, right? But when something is torn open, it's not usually that easy to put it back together. And even if you could, it's not ever going back to the way it was. I think this is what's happening here. This is the beginning of what Jesus modeled for us to pray, that God's kingdom would be made known on earth as it is in heaven. 
The kingdom has arrived and it is invading. One commentator says, The barriers are torn down and torn open, and God is now in our midst and on the loose. God is on the loose. And in fact, this is exactly what Isaiah had longed for many centuries before, where he prayed, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And here he is. And yet, how does the Spirit descend upon him? Like a dove. Again, this commentator, The descent of power from heaven that inaugurates God's reign does not swoop down like an eagle or a falcon, but comes quietly and gently like a hovering dove. Jesus will certainly show his power and authority over all things, but with his very first appearance in Mark, we see a Messiah that we might not have expected. And this will certainly continue to be a theme throughout this gospel account as leaders, people, even Jesus' disciples are confused by the kind of Messiah that Jesus is. So we read in chapter 4, The kingdom is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Say, what? Small beginnings? Ain't nobody got time for that. Let's, let's go. Small beginnings. Let's do this. Come on. This kingdom isn't about power like we might have expected. Jesus says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all, servant of all. Huh? Serving people? That doesn't sound like living in a kingdom where I thought people would be serving me. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Wait, we're acting like children? I thought we were just going to kick out the Romans and rightly worship God again. No, Jesus says, and not only will my kingdom not be about kicking out the Romans, but if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Whoa. This, I don't really know if this is a kingdom that I want. We're talking about dying here for it. Really? And then in Perhaps most surprisingly, Jesus' very purpose on the earth is entirely unexpected. Here is a Messiah who has come to live for his people and yet also die for his people. He is both the coming king, the son of David, but he will also be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the one who is pierced for our transgression, crushed for our iniquities. He who by his wounds we are healed. The very king of heaven, who the skies are ripped open for, will one day die on a shameful Roman cross. Jesus is a new Messiah, and his kingdom is an unexpected kingdom. But in the end, it is greater than anything that we could have ever dreamed up on our own. For you see, there's another place that this word, torn or split, is used in Mark. The only other place that he uses it. You know where it is? 1538, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Because of the heavens being torn open, the kingdom invading the earth, now the dividing curtain of the Holy of Holies can also be torn open. After the death of Christ on our behalf, those who follow him and trust in his life and death and resurrection actually get God himself. The presence of God, which for millennia had been off limits, now we can enter into confidently because of the blood of Christ. 
And like the heavens, that curtain is not getting fixed. It's not going back. It is open forever. So this torn language and the spirit descending like a dove is more than just a sweet and peaceful story. It is God commissioning his son into beginning his rescue mission. And God is pleased with Jesus because he is his son. He is pleased in the fully alive, fully worshipful life that has been led up into this point and will continue to be led until his last breath on the cross. So we have a new movement of God and his people. We have a new Messiah who is inaugurating God's right and righteous rule on earth. And now we see Jesus embark upon his new mission. A new mission, verse 12 and 13. Before we discuss his mission, I think we need to first ask, why did Jesus get baptized in the first place? It's a common question. It's not as if he had any impurity that he needed to be cleansed of. Well, this isn't the only reason, but I think a very important reason was that so he might identify himself with his people. In Galatians 3, Romans 6, Paul explains that when we are baptized, like Jesus was, we are actually baptized with him into his death and into his resurrection as well. Those who are Christians are those who are united in Christ in his death on their behalf, but also united with him in his life given to them as well. He is uniting himself to his people in this baptism, and he is also uniting them to himself. And this seems to be what's going on in our next section as well. Still dripping from his baptism, the same spirit that descended upon Jesus now drives him into the wilderness. We might have expected, you know, a couple hours of like really peaceful inner serenity from Jesus now that he's got this spirit, right? But the spirit drives him into the wilderness where there are wild animals and Satan. What's going on? Unlike Matthew and Luke, Mark doesn't really give us the details of what went on out there. So in case you're tempted to think that this story is only about how scripture memory will help you like fight off temptation, Mark doesn't seem to think that that's what's going on or what's really necessarily important here. So what do we do with all this? All we get, it's real short, all we get is that he's in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan and he's with wild animals and the angels are ministering to him going on? Well, a starting point is recognizing what Mark has done up until this point. We've already seen that wilderness and exodus have been major themes for him in this first chapter and will continue to be. So we might ask, who else has been tempted in the wilderness? Not for 40 days, but for 40 years. Israel. So the very first thing that Jesus must go and do after his baptism is to replay the history of Israel and succeed where they have failed. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is called God's son. And they could not, and they would not obey him. They would not obey their father. They would not trust and worship their father as God's son. So here Jesus will go out and do battle with Satan beginning to put pressure on that snake's head with his heel, living as the obedient son that Israel never was. Matthew picks up this theme and expands on it in an entire theology of Jesus being a new and better Israel. So he explains that Jesus was born in the land, but then is taken down into Egypt. 
He quotes Hosea 11, where God calls his son Israel out of Egypt and then says that God is doing the same with his son Jesus. Then he's baptized through the water, Jesus is, as Israel was baptized through the Red Sea. Paul also equates the Red Sea to baptism in 1 Corinthians 10. And immediately after their respective baptisms, they are both taken into the wilderness 40 years and 40 days and are tempted very, very similarly. And Jesus responds to Satan with the promises from Deuteronomy when they are being tempted. These are not just quick little scripture memory sword parries fighting off Satan and temptation. Jesus is saying that I will obey God in the wilderness in, which, in ways in which Israel would not, which they could not. And then after their temptation, they will both come back through the Jordan River from the east to begin their conquest of the land. In fewer words, I think Mark is doing the same thing here in his theology of a new exodus. The obedient son of God that Israel never was. Jesus' life is. But what about these wild animals? Some have interpreted them as good animals. Maybe Jesus is like Adam in the garden or Daniel in the lion's den. Others have interpreted them as antagonistic, symbolic of the wildness and the evil of the wilderness, the place where Satan seems to have free reign. I'm not entirely sure, but I think the latter probably makes more sense. But the point of this is that Jesus is superior to and stronger than the animals. He is superior to and stronger than Satan himself. Even the angels serve him. The entire spiritual world is trying to prevent Jesus or aid Jesus in his mission to live obediently so that he might give this obedience to his people. So in Jesus' death on our behalf, we get God's forgiveness. In Jesus' righteous and obedient life lived for us, we get God's acceptance. For those who are trusting in him as their greatest source of hope and joy, they are united with Christ in that death and in that life. So that when we are in Christ, one of Paul's favorite phrases, God is able to view us as he views his son and say of us as well as we are united with Jesus, you are my beloved son and in you I am well pleased. Now, of course, we are still sinners, and God desires ongoing and growing faith and obedience. But do you believe this, that God can be well pleased in you because of Christ's righteousness given to you? That if you are in Christ, you're beloved? That you no longer have to work and sweat and cross your fingers and hope that one day you did enough? One day your good outweighs your bad and God lets you in. Or do you believe that you are united with Christ? You are united with the life that Jesus has lived for you. That you are united with the death that he died for you. That Jesus has been raised to new life for you. It is finished. All of which now allows you to rest from your endlessly tiring and ultimately futile quest for God's acceptance. This is Jesus' mission, to save sinners, to forgive sinners, to heal, to recognize, to give us God himself, to give us the Holy Spirit. This is a good, good, saving mission that he is on. So now we get to Jesus' first spoken words in Mark. We get to his message in verses 14 and 15. 
Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. After his baptism, after his success over Satan and his obedience to God as the new Israel, John the Baptist is arrested. Mark doesn't give us any more than that. If you want to read more, you can flip over to Matthew 14. But after all of this, Mark tells us that Jesus essentially rolls up his sleeves, pops his neck and his fingers and says, it's time. Let's do it. The time is fulfilled. The centuries and centuries of God preparing his people for this moment is now here. The kingdom of God is at hand. It is here and the invasion begins now. It is D-Day. So just as Joshua stood at the banks of the Jordan River and announced the time to cross to begin Israel's invasion of the land, Jesus is doing the same. We've got a problem though. What is the so-called gospel of God that Jesus is proclaiming? Especially if our, God, if our understanding of the gospel is essentially the way that I've mostly been describing it this morning. that The salvation of sinners through the forgiveness of sins, through the death of Christ. You don't have to be Marty McFly here to realize that we've got a bit of a timing issue. If the gospel hinges upon Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, we're still several years away from that. And yet Jesus is proclaiming the gospel and urging his hearers to repent and believe that gospel. So what is it exactly that they are supposed to believe? What is this gospel? Well, that the heavens are torn open. And the kingdom is advancing, that Satan will be forever crushed, and God will call and bless every nation of the world by placing his forever king, the son of David, on an eternal throne. And this king will lead his people into a new exodus out of their sin. And under the saving rule of God's kingdom, his people will have new hearts that are finally alive to him. He will pour out his spirit upon them and they will love him. He will be their God and they will be his people forever and ever in a new Jerusalem that is filled with his presence. That is the gospel. And it is all beginning here. The snow has melted and the warmth of the sun is everywhere. But how does all that come about ultimately? Through the death of Christ on the cross and through an empty tomb. Through his resurrection. The gospel. So in a sense, it's not at all a new message. It's not at all a new gospel. It's the same message that God has proclaimed to the world since creation. That he will savingly rule over his people. So who is this man? He's the Christ. He is the Messiah. The answer to our age-old conundrum of how God can be both simultaneously holy and just and loving and forgiving. Are you trusting in him as your only hope? His life lived for you. His death died for you. Have you obeyed his command to repent of your sin, to turn your face from your own kingdom and from only your own desires and instead turn to life for his kingdom? Repent and believe the gospel of the kingdom, the saving rule of his kingdom. If you don't know Jesus, I pray that you would. And I pray that you would know him savingly. 
And as we continue uh, the next several months, I pray that you would investigate who this man is with us. And if you do come to the realization that Jesus is in fact the Son of God, he is the Messiah, he is the Christ, the Christ who is still alive today and ruling and reigning over his kingdom, if you come to that conclusion, we pray that you would trust him. And for those of you who know him already, we pray that you would love him all the more. That you would love God and love your neighbor even more. Trusting him more deeply and laying more and more of your own self down for the good of the kingdom and for the sake of the gospel. The gospel is for those who have never believed in it. It's the way into the kingdom. We pray that you would believe it. That you would trust in the king himself, the Lord Jesus. But it is also for those who have believed it for many, many years. So for those of you who have been believing in this Jesus for years, for much of your life, we pray that through this time in the gospel according to Mark, that this gospel and this king would enamor you even more, even more firmly, even more completely. Let's pray together to that end. Our great God, you have planned this rescue mission from the beginning of the world. From before you even created the universe, you knew how you would save a people to yourself. You would save them by the giving of yourself. By the life lived for us, by the death died for us, from the Lord Jesus, that in his resurrection we might be raised to new life in him as well. So God, we thank you. You are a good God to save a people who were once not your people. To save a people who hated you, who wanted nothing to do with you as their king, who wanted nothing to do with your kingdom. And yet, through your great love, through the mercy that you have shown us at the cross, you have so given a picture of beauty and wonder at the cross that you have lifted our gaze. So God, we pray over these next several months as we look through this gospel and we look at the life and teaching of your son Jesus that we might be even more fixed upon that cross, that our gaze might be lifted to the beauty and wonder of your son Jesus. We pray all these things for your glory and for our good and for the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.